Please join with me in prayer once again. Merciful God, we come before Thee, before the preaching of Thy Word. We ask Thy blessing upon it. O God, I believe in Thy Holy Spirit, and I trust in Him. Lord, send us not on a fool's errand, but please, please, O God, teach Thy people, edify them, lift them up, Cause them to see thy Son all the more. To live by thee, O Holy Spirit, by thy power, thy sanctifying power. Lord, that we might see him who was made a little lower than the angels, but lifted up in glory for our salvation. Lord Jesus, we trust thee. Help us to trust Thee more. Lord, help us to bow before Thy Holy Word, that this is not some foolish thing, but the very words of the living God who has called us out of our spiritual Egypt into Thy marvelous light, O God. May we learn from the prophet Jonah to see our greater Jonah, O Thee, our blessed Christ, our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 4. Let's read it together. I'll start in verse 10 of chapter 3. And God saw their works, their works being Nineveh, that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, And made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day. And it smote the gourd, that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted and wished him in himself to die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, 
that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? End of book. Dear congregation, we have been working our way through this prophetic book. We've seen Jonah as the antagonist. I mention that every week. It is, to me, one of the strangest books in the Bible. Because we have a prophet of Jehovah as the enemy in the book. And we see his sin laid out before us. And yet we see God working miraculously through him. Every step of Jonah's disobedience is blessed by God to the salvation of many souls. It's a strange thing indeed. And it ends with a strange rhetorical question about Jonah's misconceived and misplaced anger towards God. Jonah, the antagonist. Jonah, the disobedient prophet. God, the savior. God and his kindness. And ultimately, Jesus displayed as the greater Jonah through this book. And the theme of the book found in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord is seen, displayed possibly most brilliantly in this chapter. Let's notice three points in our text this afternoon. Number one, Jonah puts God on trial. Number two, Jonah receives an object lesson. Number three, God puts Jonah on trial. First, Jonah puts God on trial. This is in verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? Note, Jonah was displeased by God's mercy. Literally, it was evil to Jonah as a great wrong, and it was hot to him. It's literally what the Hebrew says. The Ninevites turning unto Jehovah in faith and repentance was displeasing to Jonah. What ought to have been a great joy to this prophet was to him a great wrong. This was God's owning of Jonah's ministry, his blessing of his ministry, that Nineveh repented at his preaching. What a strange thing this is. He's angry because of God's owning of his own ministry. The very thing that angels rejoice over in heaven was the thing that caused Jonah the most grief yet. As, as our Lord Jesus said in Luke 15.10, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Yet here we have not only one sinner, but a vast multitude of sinners repenting and coming to faith in Jehovah. Yet Jonah's angry? He's angry. Why was Jonah angry? Just as in Jonah's initial aversion to obey God as we saw in chapter 1, we can only surmise. The text is silent, but I think that we can surmise with some confidence. 
It may be due first to Jonah's nationalism and hatred of the Gentiles, as we discussed in chapter 1. Excuse me. It's as if Jonah thought to himself, Israel is God's people. Israel is God's people. Why, Why would I go to the Gentile Assyrians in Nineveh and preach the gospel? Why would I do that? We saw a similar aversion to Gentile salvation in the Apostle Peter last week when we looked at that, when he was bewildered that Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and was somewhat averse to it. If Israel is the particular people of God, the peculiar love he has for them, how can then he be merciful to any of these other people? Must be what's going through Jonah's mind, possibly. But this assumes that God has not mercy enough for all of his elect people, regardless of where they come from. It also overlooks what God told Abraham in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Forgot that one. The Ninevite revival was a foreshadowing of what would take place in the coming greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, who applied the passage in Isaiah to himself, which said, and in his name shall all the Gentiles trust. That's Matthew 12, 31. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and is talking about himself and says, me, in me, shall all the Gentiles trust. How offensive to them. Apparently, Jonah had a Pharisaical heart. It could also have been due, secondly, to Jonah's incorrect understanding that possibly he thought a Ninevite revival would be a blemish on his ministry. He's already had a pretty successful ministry on the coast of Israel, preaching and bringing people, the Israelites, back to Jehovah. Now if I go to these Assyrians and they repent, that might be a blemish on my ministry, right? Especially when Israel's having prophet after prophet after prophet sent to them during this time. We know that's Hosea. We know that Isaiah. All these other prophets are coming to Israel and they're not repenting. If I've prophesied to them that they would be destroyed, to the Ninevites, maybe he's thinking, I've prophesied to them, I said, in 40 days you shall be destroyed, and yet they end up not being destroyed, it might make me look like a liar and God look like a liar. Maybe Jonah thought that if the Gentile Ninevites repented at his preaching, it'd be a mark against his ministry rather than God's owning of it. Since his own people in Israel, the meanwhile, are not repenting at the preaching of the prophets. What would people think if now these heathen Gentile peoples repent at one brief sermon, coldly delivered without any love to the people by Jonah, when Israel all the while has prophets just preaching to them constantly and they don't repent. That'll make God look bad. That'll make Jonah look like a false prophet. Whatever his reasons may have been, again, these are just surmisings, they're invalid and they're wicked. Believers should always rejoice. We should always rejoice when we hear of others coming to faith in Christ. How much more ministers of the gospel or prophets of Jehovah? Whatever the reasons may have been, Jonah is angry. He's angry at the repentance of the Ninevites with great hot anger when he should have been rejoicing. Number two, note, Jonah 
uses good theology. He uses good theology to, good theology to accuse God of bad character and to excuse his own sin. You see that in verse 2. He prayed unto the Lord God and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. So he says, that's why I did what I did, and this is the reason why I did what I did. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. So he uses good theology right there to excuse himself and to accuse God. Thou art a gracious God, you're merciful. So he used correct theology, but he twisted it for his own wicked ends. God's being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and exceedingly kind should have caused Jonah to rejoice that it could be used by such a God and to willingly serve this God wherever he was called. But instead, Jonah attempts to use these truths about God as an excuse for his own sin and an accusation against God. It's as if he said, I fled from thy presence so that I would not be an agent of thy grace, O Lord. For I knew that if I obeyed thee, that thou wouldest be merciful unto the Ninevites. That's just how you are. And they would have been delivered. And then both thy name and mine would be besmirched by your grace. Jonah really acts like his father Adam here, does he not? Placing the blame upon God. Upon God. When Adam was asked why he ate of the forbidden fruit, he put the blame back on God. He said in Genesis 3.12, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. Not my fault. You gave me this wife. Now, we can learn from this that we often can use good theology the wrong way, dear church. We can often use good theology the wrong way. This is especially tempting for us as people who recognize God's sovereignty in every aspect of life. So if applied incorrectly knowing that god will save his elect people and will only save those whom he has predestinated unto salvation can cause us to be apathetic in evangelism in talking about the gospel with people around us if it's incorrectly applied also if incorrectly applied knowing that god is sovereign over our own heart and our own actions can cause us to be calloused in our sinful actions and attitudes If applied incorrectly, knowing that God is sovereign over revival can cause us to be cold towards the moves of God's spirit among us. Well, that sermon was nothing special because God's not moving anymore. If it was going to be special, it'd be special. That's an incorrect application of really good theology. But God's sovereignty over all things, his being the Lord of salvation, is no excuse for any of our sinful actions, any of our sinful attitudes, or any of our neglects. The theology is correct, but the application is wrong. It is not that we should be saying, God is sovereign over salvation, so I can just sit back and do nothing. Rather, we should be saying, God is sovereign over salvation, so I must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved and to implore those around me to do the same. It is not... God is sovereign in my sanctification, so therefore I can just sit back and do nothing. Rather, it is God is sovereign over my sanctification, so I must therefore labor to grow in holiness and closeness with God as if it depended on me alone. 
Our theology of God's grace must be accurate and oftentimes is in Reformed churches. But our theology of God's means of grace must also be accurate. Note also Jonah's use. Jonah uses God's gracious work as an excuse to wallow in self-pity. And verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. People who suffer in one extreme of life are often tempted to suffer in some other extreme as well. And we see that in our own lives. Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites had now boiled over into hatred for life itself. When Jonah was brought alive out of the fish's belly, he thought life to be very valuable, did he not? And was thankful to God, who had, in verse 6 of chapter 2, he said, brought his life up from corruption. He was very grateful. Furthermore, after this, his life had been extremely useful as a great blessing to the Ninevites to bring them unto salvation. Yet now, for that very reason, that the Ninevites were saved through his life being delivered... Now he sees his life as too much of a burden to even carry around anymore. He needs to be eased of it. He begs God, it is better for me to live or to die than to live. Jonah's life was of more value now than it ever had been up till this point. And yet now he wishes to be rid of it. Now he wishes to be rid of it. If Nineveh be saved, I must perish. It is better to be dead than to live in a world with saved Ninevites. How foolish is that kind of thinking? There are times, dear church, that we are used of God when it is least convenient. It's less than convenient time, God. And in those times, we ought to rejoice. In those times, we ought to rejoice, not bemoan his using of us. Bemoan his grace. We must be willing and ready at any and every moment to be used of God. If we've learned anything from the book of Jonah, it's that. This also teaches us to persevere through difficult times because God still will use us, no matter what has happened. Last sub-point under our main point, number one. God chides Jonah for his sin. In verse four, he says, Doest thou well to be angry? This is God's only response to Jonah after he says, Please kill me. It says, doest thou well to be angry? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious negative answer. Doest thou well to be angry, Jonah? No. Jonah does not do well to be angry at this great work of God among the Ninevites through him. Obvious. This is a question we should ask ourselves, though, dear church, frequently. There, there definitely is times for righteous anger. Definitely. But those are far and few between. The longer you live, the more you realize that. In most situations wherein we are angry, we do not do well to maintain that anger. And we should never be angry with our Heavenly Father, who works all things for our good. Yea, even every single blessing and every cross upon our back is something we should rejoice and praise God for. When then things are not going exactly how you want them to go at work? Doest thou well to be angry? No. You have what God has given you and what you have worked for. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. When things are not going exactly how we want them to in our marriages, 
You can ask, doest thou well to be angry? No, you were at fault for your marriage, not God. Lean upon him and do what is right and pleasing and good in his sight. When you do not possess those things in your life that you desire, doest thou well to be angry? No, you have exactly what God has seen fit to bless you with. When things are not going how you want them to in your spiritual life, doest thou well to be angry, dear believer? No, you have not because you ask and seek not. The state of your spiritual life is only up to you. Second point this afternoon, Jonah's object lesson. We see this in verses 5 through 8. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Knowing full well that he has no right to be angry. Full well that he has no right to be angry at God. Jonah gives no answer to God's rhetorical question. Rather, he just goes outside the city to see its hopeful destruction. It may be, in his mind, he thought, city's repentance might not be real. I'm going to go out there and see, see if it ends up being destroyed. Or, maybe he thought, I really convinced God's mind on this one. I, you know, I let him know, hey, you're a merciful God, you're, you're gracious, and if you save the Ninevites, your name's going to be spoken against, and so is mine. Maybe he thought he helped change God's mind. Bring him to his senses. Either way, it was a foolish and wicked act of Jonah to go sit outside the city and watch and wait. Note, Jonah made a booth to protect him from the elements while he waited, hopefully, in anticipation for Nineveh's destruction. That's in verse 5. Let us not follow Jonah at this place. We are to be soul winners. In Proverbs 11.30, it says, He that winneth souls is wise. We are not to be those who rejoice at the death of the wicked or don't care that people are dying around us and going to hell. Even God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know this from Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Notice also this about Jonah's booth. It was the making of his own hands. The booth was likely made out of palm leaves crossed together, and would only serve as a temporary shelter. It was no fit shelter, as we see, for God gave him another one, the gourd. It is always better, then, we should learn, to wait for God's provision than attempt to provide for ourselves. It's always better to wait for God's provision. Regardless, Jonah goes out and provides for his own needs to serve his own sinful purposes. He sat in the heat under his little booth, till he might see what would become of the city, the text says. He was counting on God being wicked and retracting his word and punishing the righteous who have repented and believed rather than rejoicing in God's mercy. Jonah was counting on God being 
wicked. He played the part of the prodigal's older brother, did he not? Who was jealous and was resentful when he returned and his father showed great mercy to him. He resented God and his goodness because Jonah's eye was evil. Notice also, the Lord mercifully provides for the disobedient Jonah in verse 6. His booth was no good, yet we see in verse 6, And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Even in the midst of our sin, dear believers, God is still our God. We remember that in chapter 2. God is still our God. He never leaves nor forsakes us even when we leave and forsake him. That you can rest in. That you can be assured of. God provided for Jonah even while he's literally in the midst, in the middle of an act of sin. God provided for Jonah yet. It says God prepared a gourd for Jonah. This was some kind of Middle Eastern plant, likely a reed bush that grows very high, very quick. It's, it's very thick, so it would form as a nice protection from the wind and the sand and the sun over him, much better than his booth. Jonah's booth was not sufficient as a shelter. He was in grief under the booth, it says. But God provided a shelter for his disobedient prophet to deliver him by the gourd's shadow of the grief that was being caused him from the sun as he waited to see God be wicked. Amazing. And he did this just as he delivered Jonah with the gourd, just as he had delivered Jonah with the fish, the great fish. This teaches us that God is the God of all creation. God uses all things. All things are in his hands. He creates, he sustains, and he manipulates all of creation for his own purposes of blessing and cursing. Here, he uses this gourd plant as a blessing for Jonah, while Jonah's sinning. And the fact remains that when we choose to have disobedient lifestyle, when we choose to have sin in our heart and, and keep walking in what we know is the wrong thing to do, God still gives us breath. God still gives us legs to walk. God's still giving us life. As long as there's breath in our lungs, we're alive. It's amazing. As we shake our fist, the creation that God has created, all of these plants, the gourds, the great fish, when God says do, they bow in obedience. And yet he comes to his own children who is delivered by the blood of his son and says, follow me or do this. And we shake our fist in his face and say no. And he still provides for us. God remains your God even in your sin, dear believer. All the more motivation to repent of sin, to trust in him, and to follow him. What is Jonah's response to this gracious provision of God? It says, Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Literally, he rejoiced a rejoicing. Jonah took pride in the gourd. He rested in it in an unworthy manner. Oh, my gourd. I have this thing. Jonah essentially worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. He did this through his prideful dependence upon the gourd rather than the God who gave it. From this, we learn that we must be careful never, dear Christians, to elevate God's blessings above God himself. And this is a very easy temptation to fall into. We must look not to the thing which God provides, but to the God which provides the things for us. God alone 
as the psalmist said, should be our exceeding joy in Psalm 43, verse 4. Never the creation. Never the creation. Never the finances you have. Never the family members you have. The wife you have. The children you have. The job you have. The car you have. These are all great blessings from God. And in this country, we are embarrassedly... It's embarrassing how much blessing we have from God. All of us are filthy rich in this room. Doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, you're filthy rich. I've been to places where they are not filthy rich. I have preached to more people that are in this room, a room full of 50 to 60 prostitutes in India who were coming to get a shot and a bag of rice. They came to this place once a month to do so, so they could hear the gospel. They were Christians who had to work as prostitutes, these women. Some of them early, or as young as 10. And I was given the honor to preach the gospel to them, to give eternal life offered to them. They are poor. That they have to continually, day in, day out, sleep with people to keep their, their bellies full. Sell their bodies as Christians. Yet we have all these blessings. I don't think anyone in here has to do that. Praise God. So let us then not lift up the things we have above God himself. We must be careful never to elevate them above God. God alone should be our exceeding and great joy. As Christians, we must look upon Jesus, not upon what he provides us with even salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we must Look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We must heed the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye be then be risen with Christ, which we be if we be Christians, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul also says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You can, you can take out the word is and put an equal sign there if you want. For me to live equals Christ. For me to die equals gain. For even the things which God provides for us, dear church, in this world passeth away. With the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2.17 Note thirdly, third subpoint under heading two. God showed Jonah the futility of trusting in the gourd. Verses seven and eight. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day. And it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Just as soon as the gourd was given, it was taken away. There is no quicker way. And those of you who have experienced this know this is 100% true. There is no quicker way to lose God's blessings than to put them above God in your heart. No quicker way. God is a jealous God. He will have his people's hearts. He will not be put second and he will not be bested by his own blessings. God sent a worm to destroy the gourd 
And he sent a vehement east hot wind in verse 8, full of sand and heat to make Jonah feel the grief of losing God's blessings. If blessings in your life fail, they're taken away in your life, and yet you don't feel the heat and the wind upon your face that shows you they're missing, you should really, really be concerned. Really, really be concerned. Even after all this, Jonah again resorts to self-pity and resentment under his correction, and he wished himself again dead. It is better to be dead than to live without my gourd. When God humbles us, let's not waste it, dear church. Do not waste God's humblings, but bow before him in obedience, patiently learning under his chastening rod as we've Looked at, we must heed the apostles' words in Hebrews 12, 5, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, no faint when thou art rebuked of him. Let us also remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23, verse 12. He says, Whosoever shalt exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Third heading, God puts Jonah on trial. This is seen in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh? That great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. Now, after Jonah had put God on trial, hoping to correct God of his foolish mercy towards the Ninevites, and after being humbled by God once again, he now reveals to Jonah the depths of his own foolish sin, using the gourds perishing as an example. Note first, Jonah digs in while being corrected for his sin in verse 9. Doest thou well? I do well to be angry, even unto death, he says. Jonah wastes the opportunity to be corrected. After his failed booth, God's provision and removal of the gourd, and Jonah's suffering without any shelter at God's hands, he still maintains that his anger and self-pity are warranted. I do well to be angry, even unto death. When God corrects us for our sin, dear church, let us be quick to repent, quick to return unto his loving countenance, like Jonah was in chapter 2, not like he is here. Jonah was spiritually selfish, spiritually selfish, and the gourd's gracious growth and subsequent withering reveal this. He was spiritually selfish by not desiring the salvation of the Ninevites in the first place and resenting God's call to use him. And he was selfish even for the blessings he received at God's hand by the gourd, even in his sin. How different this Jonah is than the example we have in St. Job. Job was an upright man who put God first, who led family worship, who sought after God and was upright in all his ways. 
And he was laid destitute at the hand of God for God's purposes. And when tempted by his wife to curse God and die, since all of our blessings are gone, he cried out, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job. Yet here we have Jonah, when laid low in his sin, having the blessings he'd been given removed, maintains his pride and curses God's providence, saying, I do well to be angry, even unto death. It's a big difference. Let's be Job's. Note also, secondly, God reveals Jonah's foolishness and wickedness to him using the gourd as a parable of sorts in verses 10 and 11. God tells Jonah just how absurd his actions and attitude is. Thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. You didn't do anything. You didn't make this. I gave it to you, which came up in a night and it perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand or 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? We see this all the time around us, the same kind of mindset. Advocates for animal rights, animal protection, who are against animal cruelty, or people who wish to protect the environment. Want to go pick up trash and, and worry about global warming all the time. But they're for abortion. They have more pity on the creation than they do on humans. The least among them, too. Those who cannot discern their left hand from their right. Infants. This is foolishness in the highest degree. Now, that is not to say... We should be neglectful towards creation or animals. In fact, the Bible calls us even higher than those advocates could ever think in their foolish minds. It calls for a high regard and a high care for all of God's creation. We are to be stewards of the earth, caring for it, tilling it, cultivating it, managing it diligently. The scripture even goes so far to say this in Proverbs 12.10, A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. It's only a foolish man that abuses a beast, an animal. In this, even Jonah's care for the human life in Nineveh, if he had any, are but cruelties. He regarded the gourd, a mere plant, more than he did the 120,000 infants in Nineveh. Why do I say infants? Those who cannot discern their right hand from their left most Bible commentators say that probably has to do with infants, children under two years of age in Nineveh, because it was a great city. And we know at that time there were cities that were much greater or or, or the great cities were much more than 120,000 people. And at certain estimates, this would then put, if there's 120,000 children here, this would put the actual size of the city at 650,000 people. So for Jonah... Even 650,000 people possibly was worth less to him than a silly weed that he did nothing for. Though he would have, he would have labored for it, cared for it. 
How often, dear believers, we put our physical possessions above God. We put our physical possessions, our physical acquirements, our jobs, or what, what have you, above even the people nearest to us, our own family members, above other people. Let us learn from this lesson of Jonah to set our eyes on Christ that we may see what truly matters in this life. Those whom God has given us. Those whom God has given us. Be heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded so that you can do earthly good. As we saw in Colossians. Third note from all of this. This whole book we've just gone through. Let us learn to praise and serve the Lord Jehovah, crying out, salvation is of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9. The book of Jonah strangely ends in a rhetorical question from God. The question is posed, but the answer is obvious. But what happens after? Verse 11 ends. There's a question given to Jonah. What happened after? It seems that Jonah may have repented after this last exchange. Again, this is surmising. We're not told. It is likely, though, according to many commentators, that he wrote this book. He wrote the book of Jonah as a narrative of God's salvation and his own foolishness and hard-heartedness, which shows his repentance for such behavior. Jonah possibly puts this book forward before the world as a testimony that salvation is of the Lord. If this book be that, we should honor it. We should cherish the message it contains. In this book, dear church, we have seen time and time again that salvation is only of the Lord. From the salvation of the sailors in chapter 1. From the salvation of the sailors in chapter 1 to the deliverance of Jonah from the waters in the great fish's belly to the repentance of Nineveh to Jonah's deliverance from the sun by the gourd that God gave him. In all of this, we see salvation is of the Lord. And now, dear church, our greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, is that Lord through whom salvation is given. Let us run to him, run to his open arms. Let us desire and ask for the desire to live for him alone. Let us seek all of our needs in him. Let us find all of our exceeding joy in him and not the gourds in our life. Let us then turn quickly from our sins, immediately following God when he calls us. Let us put no hope in the arm of the flesh. Let us love God more than his blessings and lift up our Savior Jesus Christ on high in all things that we do, proclaiming salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. This book of Jonah has been a great blessing as it is the inspired word of God to us. And we have seen Christ in every single word. When you read the book of Jonah, remember these things. Remember that he ran away. He disobeyed time and time again and God was gracious to him. Whatever your circumstance may be, dear believer, God is with you and for you. God is never going to leave or forsake you. So therefore, don't act like Jonah. Be obedient. Be grateful for his grace. Let us pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. We thank thee.
for the book of Jonah. We ask, Lord, that thou would write those lessons upon our heart that we learned while we studied it. We ask, God, that we would love thy son, Jesus. That would grant us repentance and faith. That would help us to point others to the greater Jonah in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.